I had failed. I had failed at marriage. I had failed at a very important relationship. And I needed something stronger than myself, something greater than myself to believe in. It was at that point that I was very open to Jesus. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Claire Stober, who's an author and editor of the book, Another Life is Possible. She is part of the Bruderhof movement. Claire, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you, Steve. And I understand you are speaking to me from your community. Where is that? I'm speaking to you from our Fox Hill community, which is in Walden, New York, in the Hudson Valley. So celebrating 100 years of the Bruderhof, will you talk to me about origins? including the founder, Eberhard Arnold. So our community started in 1920, and this was a time that was in the wake of the First World War. And in Germany, we don't often learn about it in our own history, but Germany was totally devastated by the effects of the war, primarily that the people at home were experiencing starvation and experiencing cataclysmic political strife. On one hand, you had the communists. and On the other hand, you had people of a more national socialist bent who were fighting in the streets over who would actually rule the country. And that's when the Weimar Republic was instituted in the wake of the First World War. At the same time, a small group of people were meeting together weekly to discuss and seek, as many people do all, all throughout history, how they can better serve God and what it means to really follow Jesus. And one of the texts that they were really centered on was the Sermon on the Mount. And they met together in Berlin, but also met together in different parts of Germany, along with different Christian wings of the youth movement in Germany. And the Arnolds were leaders within that youth movement and really felt called to okay, we've talked enough about the Sermon on the Mount, now let's live it. And so they moved from Berlin to rural Germany, right in the middle of Germany, with their five children and started the first Bruderhof community. They quickly had, and it's hard to believe, but over a thousand visitors in that first year mm. that would come to their home, stay overnight, or sleep out in tents. It was, it was the youth movement, after all and came to see what the Arnolds were doing there. And a number of them stayed, but many of them passed through. And from that community in 1920, here we are in 2020 having our 100th anniversary, our centenary. And many people ask, well, what is the Bruderhof? And to help them get a sense of what makes us unique, I'll try to explain that a bit. We're an intentional Christian community, We have, at the present time, just over 3,000 people spread out in 28 of our settlements or communities that are on four continents. We call ourselves a fellowship of families and singles. We practice radical discipleship, hopefully in the spirit of the First Church in Jerusalem. And to do that, we gladly renounce our private property and share everything in common. We look on our vocation as a life of service to God, 
to one another and to our neighbors. And we believe that God wants such a life for all his people, and that life would be one of peace and unity, where no one is richer or poorer than another, where the welfare of the oldest and the youngest and the weakest is a shared priority. And when you come, you'll see that family life is treasured here and where there's meaningful work for everyone. But most of all, there's a lot of time for laughter, for friendship, for singing, and for children. A lot of people will say, this sounds like heaven on earth. And at times, it is heaven on earth. (laughs) And when you are sometimes in conflict, it's the other. <laughs> but that's that's part of life. I am so excited to talk about the Bruderhof. Two things. First, does that mean brotherhood? No, it means a place of brothers, and brothers often in the sense of multiple people. Mm. So I, I like to think of it a place of brothers and sisters. Yes. Well, since it is the 100-year anniversary, the centenary, you've put together a book. I want to remind people that you can go online, if you're listening right now, to anotherlifeispossible.com. You'll be able to see this book. You'll be able to see photos and stories that are added there. Eventually, there will be more photos than even are in the book by that same name. And you could order the book if you'd like at that site. As I have gone through, it's just fascinating to me what you've done, not just to explain, but really to show with an award-winning, world-class photographer. And this is a project you have worked on for years, both your writing, your editing, gathering stories, and the photography. Right. It was a two-year project. And I had the privilege of traveling to about six of our communities on three continents with Danny Burroughs, the photographer that we hired to take the photographs. Danny is not a member of the community, but he is a well-known photojournalist from um, the UK. And we encountered him almost through serendipity. He was just finishing up a a two-year photo essay in the Calais jungle, which is the um, name for the refugee camp, from the primarily refugees from northern Africa there in Calais. And it's since been torched by the officials and then rebuilt and torched. So he'd been embedded there for, oh, a number of months taking photographs. And he was going through their warehouse one day and noticed a a group of school children were sorting the donations in the warehouse. And he asked, well, where are they from? Because he noticed they were speaking English. And he was told, oh, they're from some Christian school over in Kent. And that's where Danny happened to come from. So he When he got back to Kent across the channel, looked up our school and our school children and asked if he could come photograph the community because it looked intriguing to him. And we get, on average, about probably a call every two weeks from photographers wanting to come take photographs, I'm told, and try to politely say that's really not on. But Danny had had this great photo essay of the Calais jungle, and we wanted to show it to our community. So... They invited him up to show the photo essay to the whole community. And he really connects with people and made a great impression on the people in the community. So a year later, when we're sitting down as a committee to decide what we're going to do to celebrate our 100th anniversary and decide to do a book and it would have photographs, the person who was his contact in Britain said, we really need to hire this guy, Danny Burroughs. He'd be perfect for the job. And as it turns out, he was perfect for the job. 
he was able to really connect with the people, keep the different people who are not used to having photographers come around, relax, and be able to really just feel very comfortable with him around. They are extraordinary photographs. Anyone will see that if they go to that website, anotherlifeispossible.com. Claire Stober, I wonder, just that phrase, another life is possible. I know that there are people caught up in the rat race, caught up in tension, or realizing they're caught up in, in the game of owning more things to feel successful, who ask themselves, isn't there another way to live? And for many people, they don't see a possibility. You have a collection of stories of people who decided to try and actually find another life, live another life. Would you mind if I start with yours? From what I have read of your story, you found yourself on that treadmill of success, but were not happy about it. You're right. And uh, as you were describing, Another Life is Possible, I was nodding my head. (laughs) Um, Yes, I would say I've been on a journey since I was 21, and I came to the community when I was 37. So that was about a 15, 16-year journey. And at that time, I would not have described it as a search for community. I was, um, I'd had an experience of Jesus when I was about 21, and it had really changed my life and the way I saw what's important in life and what I really felt would, I wanted to do. But I was working as a graphic designer in a, a small agency, and not long after that, one of the people in that design firm and I left the firm and started our own agency in the Northern Virginia area. And our agency grew. It doubled every year. We hired more staff every year. So that 15 years later, I was looking at a very successful business, but I was no happier than I was before I started it. In fact, I was a great deal unhappier. I was just a lot more wealthy. Hmm. And I knew that that is not what I really wanted out of life. I didn't want to, I wasn't looking for comfort. I was looking for meaning, and I could no longer find any meaning in advertising and helping people to sell million-dollar homes or doing annual reports or whatever projects we were working on. I really wanted a, a life that integrated my beliefs with what I, the work I did every day. So I, I left that business and in the process, moved to another small fellowship, and we started talking about, you know, why don't we do like they did in the early early Christians, where they lived in community, like it talks about in the Book of Acts. And we were seriously talking about forming community in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. And one of those people in that group had visited the Bruderhof before and said, well, I suggest we go and spend a little time at the Bruderhof and see how they do it. And so we did. We came the day after Christmas and stayed till New Year. And within days, I realized it takes a lot more to build community than I had ever dreamed possible. And you know what? This is a perfectly viable community, and why would I want to start anything new? And so at that point, I began looking at more seriously what does the Bruderhof community believe and How do I feel about it? Does it align with what I felt? I had been here about eight weeks when I suddenly realized there's a lot more depth to the life in community and in this, in the Bruderhof, than I had ever experienced before in my fellowship. And 
in order to really penetrate that depth, I needed to open myself and be as transparent as possible, as well as be as, and, and follow my instinct to trust. And so what grew in me was this understanding that there's a, a trusting and transparency intertwining that happens when you live in community and you've committed your lives to the whole following of God together. I wonder if I could just read one quote from your story here that impressed me so much. It says, In my former life, I used money as a way of building security against imagined catastrophes, retirement, to live in beautiful surroundings. And then you say that you found fear gripping your heart, saying, what if the community collapses? What about retirement and insurance? I'm sure these are things everyone thinks about. And then you say, the irony is that once I joined the community, I never even thought about those fears again. They completely dissipated. I think that's wonderful. But I think lots of us think, but how would we do without all, all of these quote, preparations. Right. It is an amazing thing, but that's exactly what happened. All of us who grew up in middle class, you try not to live without health insurance, and you try to make sure that you're saving for your retirement and thinking ahead and whatever else, you know, you do to protect yourself from acts of God, as it turns out. When you live together and share all those burdens I found I've been much better taken care of than I ever was, and I didn't anticipate this, but my health care has been much better, and I would say that we're all working together for a shared vision, and we all lend our talents to whatever it takes to get there, and it's a very rich life, and I don't mean rich in the sense of financially rich, it's rich in experiences. Experiences, and it sounds like everyone has what they need. Maybe not more than that, but at least what they need to live. That's the idea. We have what we need. To have more than that is selfish, actually. Would you mind if I go back with you? You mentioned about age 21 having an experience with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable sharing some of that journey or what that meant to you? Well, I had grown up. My parents had taken us to Episcopal Church all of my childhood. And I have to say, I really did not have a faith when I was in my teens, I had a lot of doubts, and maybe I had a decided non-faith. And it was actually going through the process of a divorce that stopped me in my tracks and made me really think hard about what is important in life and also realize that I had failed. I had failed at marriage. I had failed at a very important relationship, and I needed something stronger than myself something greater than myself to believe in. And it was at that point that I was very open to the suggestions of another co-worker about Jesus. And I normally would have you know, pushed it off or rebuffed it. But I knew that I not only didn't have all the answers, I had very little answer. And I was deeply needing something greater than myself. And the more I listened to his suggestions about Jesus, the more it opened my heart to them. And it culminated one day, and this is all in the days before computer. And in those days, you had dark rooms in your graphic design studios, Mm -hmm. which were small rooms lit by a red lamp. And I loved to work in dark rooms because I could do a lot of thinking in there while I was working. And 
I went into the dark room, and while I was working, I had this experience of having my whole life up to that point sort of event by event flash before me, especially the events where I had been duplicitous or actually sinful or just selfish. And I realized I am really not the kind of person that I want to be. And I called out in my head, not out audibly, but, you know, God, I don't really believe in you, but if you are real, show yourself to me. And I did experience something. I experienced him and came out of that dark room a different person. And I have to say, the world looked very different after that. There was a lot more hope. There was a lot more possibility. And I had a lot of growing to do as a a new believer. Mm. And it went on for a number of years. I wonder if you would tell me about the day that you went and decided, I'm going to join the Bruderhof. I would like to join this community. Do you present yourself before a, a council of elders or in a meeting? How does that work? Ah, I can't remember the day. And... It's probably over a number of discussions, but the people that I discussed it with are what we call servants, and um, we have we practice a servant leadership where it's a leadership through entrustment, I call it, where we trust them, and that's a typical Anabaptist approach to leadership is to raise up people from the peers, your your peers, to when you recognize their ability to listen or to sense what is important or their depth of compassion, and you ask them to lead. And so I went to the servants and explained that I would like to be a novice. And being a novice means it's also a commitment, and you are seriously seeking and binding yourself to the brotherhood, and that's the point at which you probably, if you had them, bring the keys to your car or whatever is very symbolic of your worldly possessions and hand them over to the community. And that's what I did. Was that a relief or was that sort of a, oh my goodness, what have I done moment? Oh, probably both, I would think. <laughs> More of a relief. I'd, I'd certainly tested myself a number of times before I did anything so rash. And it wasn't rash at the point I did it. It was very much of a affirmation yes, I am going to do this. Yes, this is right. And I knew that I needed to make such a step when I was absolutely positively certain. Because like all commitments one makes, there are times when you wonder, what did I do? And you have to be able to go back and say, yes, it felt right then. Mm. You're just going through a low point now. Although I have to say, I've never questioned it. I've never regretted it. That's wonderful to hear. Something very scriptural. You are sort of paraphrasing the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament is when you say in the book, in the end, the renewal I was looking for cost everything. I sold my antique furniture, my vacation home, etc., etc. That sounds very much like if you would save your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. And I was very aware of that when I was doing it. It felt scriptural at that time. Mm. Yeah. You've had the chance in making this book, you say, to travel around and to do many interviews with different 
adherents, different members of the community in various nations and continents. Is there a type of person who wants to come and join, or are they all different people from all different walks of life? Well, they're definitely all different from all different walks of life, all different countries, different creeds. We have people who grew up Jewish, grew up Catholic. We now have someone who grew up Muslim, and many, many people who grew up in houses that had no faith. So there's no mold or paradigm that you start with at any weight. I think what they all have in common is a desire to live a life of meaning and purpose. And then you are really seeking to serve Jesus. That's what we all grow to have in common. I wonder if you could tell me, what do you wish that people knew about life in community like this, a religiously based community? Um, I think what's most important is that such a life is really possible here in you know, 21st century America. And the Bruderhof at 100 is sort of a, I would call it a time-tested example. We are in our fifth generation, but we're very aware that there's a saying, there are no grandchildren in heaven. Each person has to find that relationship with Jesus, you know, as, the, as a direct relationship with Jesus. And that as imperfect as each of us is, we can live together in full obedience to his commands and with a vision for the rest of the suffering world. There are a lot of misconceptions about life and community, and my hope is that the book and website can dispel some of those and maybe even make people curious enough to visit after COVID, I would answer (laughs) or add. And that even though we've chosen to live together, we're all still individuals. That's a big question. I think people wonder if they will be subsumed and lose individuality. In groupthink, no. We are all very much individuals, and we, we celebrate individualism within, you know, that is working toward the same vision. So it's a, there's this a dynamic that needs to happen there. The so, other thing that I think people need to understand is that you, you don't have to be special to live in community. You just have to want to live for something greater than yourself. So... When we sat down to decide who we were going to interview, we really wanted to include stories of ordinary life and people that are you know, young, currently living here, who've chosen this life, not have a hundred-year history of all the people that went before, and that when you take the time to talk with someone, no life is merely ordinary. We all have extraordinary lives. I was very impressed with the wide variety of people stories in the book, everything from nurses to physicians to craftspeople, quite a variety. And there was one picture that really caught my eye, which was a picture of a gentleman, older gentleman, who actually knew Eberhard Arnold. Is he still living, this man? Klaus Bart? Yes. Yes. Now, he knew him as a, when Klaus was quite young, a small child, but yeah. he did know him. But what a connection to the beginnings and to be able to reach back and ask him about those early years. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there are many communities, but if I understand correctly, there are also places where smaller groups are beginning that you would call a house. Right. We have a number of house communities. We started one in Minneapolis. We have one down in St. Petersburg, Florida, one in Albany, New York. And then we have 
house community in Harlem, New York. So we're very urban and suburban situations. Interesting. We usually think of this working more more bucolic setting with pastures around and all of that. Right. And the dress seems quite simple. Some might suggest Amish or Mennonite. What is the philosophy of dress? The philosophy of dress is definitely simplicity and modesty. That's sort of what we try to achieve no matter what we wear. And to a certain extent, our women's clothing is a derivation of when we were connected with the Hutterites from the Manitoba and South Dakota Mm. areas of the uh, country. And it's sort of modified from that because we're really no longer as connected as we were with the Hutterites. And the men's dress is also simple and as modest as we can make it and practical, jeans, shirts. I find the dress very comfortable. When I was in a in the Quaker Fellowship before, we dressed more like Beachy Amish, and I find this dress to be much more comfortable and practical for me. Mm. What are the things in the course of a week or of a month that make you feel most connected to God and feel that presence with you? That's a good question. I would say, coming from 15 years of being a Quaker and finding God quite often in a gathered silence, I really value my times alone before God. So that's one place. But the other place is when we're all gathered together. And we were able to do that much more before COVID. Now we gather and are outside together. And whether it's singing or doing a work project together or celebrating something together. It's this sense of gatheredness for a shared purpose that makes me feel close to God. You mentioned your experience in the darkroom of calling out to God and feeling definitely a response. How do you perceive direction from God or answers to prayers? Hard to put into words. We're discussing the ineffable. We are discussing the ineffable. And when you think back and try to put it into words, extremely elusive. I would say it's a combination of, at least my experience has been, when I receive an answer from God, there's often, he will often use perhaps someone who I least expect it to reinforce that answer, Hmm. to come up with something that, just something that they don't even realize they've said that confirms what I felt convicted that I should or should not do. That's one of the more concrete ways I could say it or describe it. It's a feeling, and it's a feeling that it's not a warm and fuzzy. For me, it's often a a conviction, an inner conviction. Hmm. Is there a percentage of people who come and join the community and then feel like they're not able to live that? and might leave? Or do most, by the time they've joined, they've been there enough that they really want to and understand what they're getting into? I'd say by and large, people that come and then do stay understand what they're getting into. And those that leave often don't leave because they don't understand what they've gotten into. We've tried to make it very clear, but perhaps something has changed in their life or perhaps their wishes have changed. When you have someone leave a gathered body like that, it's always a a diminishing, and the body feels it. Now, on the other hand, 
our children do not become members until they're 21. And we really encourage them to have their own experience of Christ before they ask to become members and even be baptized before they are asked to become members. So they are asking to become a member as a, a fully cognizant adult. And so a certain number of the young people who've grown up here decide that they want to go out and try something else before they come back or don't come back. I can imagine that this life is not for everybody. It's a life of you know, intense commitment, and you really got to share that commitment if you're going to be part of it. It's fascinating to me that lots of us who call ourselves Christian have read in the New Testament, of course, of people having all things in common and the idea of there are no poor among them, that all are taken care of by the community. We read that over and over and we think, oh, what wonderful things those people did. And yet we often fail to make the same conclusion that there are many ways, at least many ways, if not totally living in community, that we could be doing better at doing all of those things. And I know many believers do. There is so much service and an anonymous yes. help that goes on. Right. You mentioned that you are still learning, that this experience is still teaching you, and I think that's marvelous. Yes, I'm still on that journey, I would say. Hopefully going deeper, hopefully growing a bit more wise and compassionate along the way. Definitely learning. What was your takeaway from visiting and interviewing so many people in 10 different communities around the world? Well, it's really reassuring knowing on such a, a deep level so many brothers and sisters and having their support in all the people that we contacted and we photographed. We were totally supported by, and they, they didn't really have a, a clear idea of the, the project as it was happening, and so they were trusting and I did 150 interviews, many of them by phone, many of them in person, and really appreciated them sharing with me as we went through their story. I just felt very close to different brothers and sisters along the way. Then after the book came out, I've had countless emails, cards, phone calls from brothers and sisters thanking for the book, and even though I was just one of a committee that worked on it, but expressing how much they appreciated being able to read those stories of their brothers and sisters and how it really affirmed what they felt about the community and that it, it expanded their way of seeing other people's lives as well. We have a traditional question on the show here, which would be Claire Stober. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? Well, one thing that we did not go over that I think, and we intimated it, but didn't really get into it, is that who is the book for? Mm. I sat down with a committee of about seven people over a series of about, I would say, five meetings to come up with the idea and then come up with how we were going to go about it and what subjects would be covered. And our original idea was for a book, a traveling exhibit, and the website. Luckily, we gave up on the traveling exhibit long before <laughs> COVID hit, or I would have hated to have you know, created this big exhibit and have to put it in a warehouse. One of the things that we were all agreed on is that if we're going to do a book to mark our 100th anniversary, it's going to be a forward-looking book. It's not going to look backward. It's not going to be filled with 
you know, a lot of old sepia-toned photographs. We want to reach out beyond our own borders with this message. We sat down and said we would like to reach people between the ages of 25 and 45 who perhaps are disillusioned with their lives and the status quo and are open to alternative ways of living. They don't need to be Christian or self-identify as Christian. They just need to be looking for lives of meaning and purpose. And we wanted to, once they looked at the book or the website, to think, you know, another way of life is possible and it could be for me. Or, you know, this shows me what true Christianity could look like. Mm. Or, they've been doing this for a hundred years, so it is a genuine alternative to the status quo. And one of our younger members added, not just some New Age hippie stuff. Um, (laughs) The other thing was that, you know, they're just normal people like me, but they dare to do something different, so maybe I can do it as well. So those are the thoughts that we would like people to entertain as they look through the book and the website, and maybe be curious enough to write and ask to come visit. And, you know, once COVID is over, we hope to have a number of people visit. We certainly had a, a lot of people writing in after seeing the website and reading the book. I imagine, yes. Talking to Claire Stober, she's the creative director for Plow Publishing House, which has published this book, Another Life is Possible. You can find out more about the book and see many photographs, even more than are in the book, at anotherlifeispossible.com, and also lots of the stories. Claire Stober, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you very much, Steve. I've really enjoyed it. That's our time for today. Thanks to Claire Stober from the Fox Hill Bruderhof community near Walden, New York, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. Find out more, read stories of a hundred different Bruderhof members from around the world, and see the amazing photographs at anotherlifeispossible.com. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cat Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.